cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Ed Mendel. What can I say about Eddie? He is the co-founder of Ned Davis Research, uh, which is a enormously successful institutional research shop sold to Euromoney uh, about six or seven years ago for, for a price tag that is... Uh, Googleable, but I could tell you it's in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, he very successfully took the genius that was Ned Davis and wrapped an entire business model around it. And while Ed himself is very humble and, and credits uh, uh, Ned's genius for the success of the firm, really he is one of these um, underappreciated uh, people in finance who who took a great idea and found a way to turn it into a very, very successful business. I don't think there would have been a Ned Davis research without Ed Mendel's uh, contributions. He's also very actively involved in philanthropy. He's one of the minority owners of, of the Atlanta Falcons and just uh, an all-around inspirational guy. I've relied on his insights over the years, not just for uh, helping to put together the forerunner of, of Masters in Business. We discussed a little bit uh, about how his contributions actually helped lead to this show, but also his insights about running a business and managing people and managing capital and assets and being able to think about the various ways that business is done uh, properly, intelligently, ethically, and and. Um, just just being smart about how to run a shop. Uh, and so I have a tremendous amount of gratitude to him personally for, for sharing his insights with me over the years. He mentors a lot of people, uh, and, and he's just one of these people who aren't a household name but have had an enormous influence on, on finance and business. And even though you may not have heard of him, uh, you probably should have. So with no further ado, here is my conversation with Eddie Mendel. My special guest today is Ed Mendel. He is co-founder of Ned Davis Research, as well as the brokerage firm Davis, Mendel, and Regenstein, uh, which were both founded in 1980. Collectively, they're known as the Ned Davis Research Group. Uh, Ed helped to build one of the largest stock and bond research followings on Wall Street, working closely with Ned Davis since 1971. Their research is best characterized as an objective disciplined approach to investing, focusing on risk management, primary trends, and avoiding major financial disasters. Ed has been associated philanthropically with numerous national and Atlanta charities. He is also a minority owner of the NFL football team, the Atlanta Falcons. Ed Mendel, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you. So I've been looking forward to this for a while. I think I know you for more than a decade, maybe close to two decades, because of your work at Ned Davis Research and, and being a partner uh, to Ned. Let's ask the first question. You guys began in the middle of a bear market in the 1970s in your work in, in markets. How did that impact your psychology the rest of your career? It got us focused and uh, we really became uh, an institutional research firm. Mm -hmm. And we were very fortunate that when we started, 
It was 95% retail, and it ended up being 95% institutional. And so it wasn't uh, a matter of, of anything but uh, being at the right place at the right time with the right product. And I just knew that Ned was a genius uh-huh. and that uh, we would somehow be successful. The 70s, you guys were at a brokerage firm. How did you and Ned hook up? How did you guys find each other? I started at J.C. Bradford in Nashville, and uh, Ned came home from Harvard and uh, started working for J.C. Bradford. I went in and introduced myself to Ned, and we struck a friendship. And, uh, and uh, you know, eight years later, we left to start our own firm. You mentioned being in, launching your career in the 1970s and Ned Davis Research in 1980. You started mostly at retail, but it eventually morphed to institutional. Was that because the retail investor was not a participant? Was it the psychology? How did you shift to such a heavily heavily weighted institutional practice? Bradford, I don't think, really understood what they had on their hands with Ned. Mm-hmm. So I was one of the first people to go out and market Ned in Texas, in, in the state of Texas and in Houston. And going backwards, uh, I was a retail broker. Uh-huh. And my career really got helped tremendously by May Day. Uh, uh, May first, nineteen seventy-five, when all the commission structures changed. Yeah, it used and to be eight, could... Uh, you could. So I became really one of the first discount brokers, mm-hmm. and so it was eighty-two cents to sell a hundred shares of IBM. But Merrill Lynch and Kidder and Payne Weber would not let you discount. So I went around to all the wealthy people I could find in Atlanta and offered them a 40% discount. Wow. So I became the biggest producer at Bradford. Uh-huh. But then I started asking Ned to leave, and we were going to leave in 78, and we ended up leaving in 1980, which is a, another story which I'll get to later. Okay. Well, let, let's get to it right now. You started in 1980. Why Why did you wait till that year? We were going to leave in 78, and uh, Ned was going to move to uh, Sarasota, Venice, Florida, and uh, we were going to start the firm. But uh, Bradford came to Ned and made him a partner, and, uh, and he stayed. But then in 1979, he went to Jimmy Bradford and told Jimmy that he wanted a computer. And Jimmy told him, I've seen computers, and you're doing fine just the way it is. Mm-hmm. And so Ned went out on his own and spent $35,000 on a Hewitt Packard computer that did graphics. And within a six months, you could buy a chip that made it 10 times faster. And within a year, you could buy the computer with the chip in it that was 10 times faster for a total of $7,000. Wow. And, uh, uh, and, and I recall Ned saying that he had pitched Bradford on technology and computerization and the ability to crunch a lot of numbers. And the response was sort of, Hey, what you're doing is working fine. Yeah, he, with that Jimmy said it's work. It's working just fine. But Ned, Ned is was was a genius, and you know, was, among many other things, it was clean data. Uh, you know, we clean data for Ibbotson and S and P, and uh, you know, we were known for our charts and our data, among many other things. But uh, the, the the other great story uh, that came out of that is uh, uh, Ned told me I think the fourth biggest lie ever told. Mm-hmm. And he told me when we started that we were going to need a programmer, but just for a year. And I think when we sold the company, we had 14 programmers. So the fourth biggest lie is you, we're going to get a programmer, but just for a year. Just for a year. Let's talk a little bit about you guys hanging your shingle in, in 1980. Really, the final innings of a 16-year bear market. How did you guys have the nerve to launch into that environment and how did you get clients? We started, and Ned thought that within four months we would have the products that he had in his head up and running, but it was two years later. So right. we never took any money out of the business for two years. Wow. We put it back into the business uh, completely and totally. And uh, I had a big retail business, and so the retail helped carry us until we got up and running with the institutional business. Mm-hmm. And that eventually morphed to almost all purely institutional. Totally, Mm -hmm. which uh, was a blessing. Why do you say that? 
the retail is, uh, you know, where's my check? Where's my dividend? I'm going to sue you. It's, right. it's, it's, a, it's just a institution. It's a tough gig. It really yeah. is. And so, you know, if you're going to do it, you might as well get paid big. Mm-hmm. And we, we were blessed that uh, as far as the right time and the right place, um, we got paid in soft dollars and commissions. So, so explain soft dollars because a lot of listeners may not be familiar with it. Well, uh, we would go to the state of Texas and tell them we wanted $25,000. And, uh-huh. and if I went to you and said, I have this service and, you know, you'll like it, but you had to write a check personally for $25,000, you go, I really like it, a lot of money. But the state of Texas was going to buy a million shares of Boeing through one of our clearing firms, right. uh, Payne Weber or Goldman Sachs or especially Bear Stearns. And so they'd buy a million shares and at 10 cents a share back then or 15 uh-huh. and, and give us ten or $15,000. So in other words, you, it, you guys set up the broker-dealer in order to that's right, the broker, allow, hey, we're going to spend the money on the commission anyway. It might as well pay for the And research. it was other people's money. Mm-hmm. And so that's what made the, the business uh, very successful. Were you ever actively involved in trading? yourself or were you mostly doing institutional sales mostly institutional sales and um so the business was sold in 2010 do you still have any involvement because i know ned still does no so no. you're you're free and clear for free, seven years now that's right? right the falcons and grandchildren is what's keeping you busy mm-hmm. um so when you guys launched in 1980 who were your competitors who was out there selling the sort of quantitative technical research that that you guys were doing again we were just at the right place at the right time with with the right product and one of the products though ended up uh, by accident mm-hmm. uh, was the uh, chart service mm-hmm. we, we did the charts for ned mm-hmm. and uh, as long as you're doing it for him you might as well make yeah, it available we, had, for we really didn't have an idea that that would be such a huge hit for client presentations for marketing and meetings mm-hmm. and uh, brochures and so we had a huge uh, publishing uh, complex by sending out these huge chart books that were three or four inches thick, uh-huh. and then we got into customized research. So let's talk about customized research because at present and for the past decade or so, Ned Davis Research generates 2,000 custom research projects a year. Am I getting that right? Uh, it's been six years since I've been there, but, but, but more or a less. lot, a lot. So, so what's a typical request how is this ramped up over time that sounds like a lot of specific individualized research or is there a ton of overlap from one to the next uh again some of the best projects and ideas have come from our clients mm-hmm. and so ned is uh, just incredible about devouring data and information and studies mm-hmm. and so we had a whole research department of people that would do projects that other people thought of doing or uh, they would want the, the models or stuff built just for them on a proprietary basis so mm-hmm. we once we got in their back pocket uh, we stayed there. Huh. So let me let me share one of my favorite Ned Davis quotes, and, and you could perhaps give me a little color on it. We are in the business of making mistakes. The only difference between winners and losers is that winners make small mistakes while losers make big mistakes. Discuss. Well, you know, Ned's also famous for uh, saying the, the only thing worse than making a forecast is sticking by it. Right. And so, He wrote, famously wrote a book, Would You Rather Be Right or Make Money? Yes. Being Right or Making Money, Being I think right is or the exact money. title. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, risk control. Uh, and, you know, I'm reminded of uh, one of the biggest hedge fund people in, uh, in a, here in New York once told me he puts on a trade and then starts worrying about everything that can go wrong. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, having a stop loss and controlling risk and not letting a little mistake become a disastrous mistake is mm-hmm. is, is incredibly important. I, the version of that I learned when I began in the business was it's okay to be wrong. It's unforgivable to stay wrong. And I think there's a lot to that. Yes. Um, so the I keep coming back to the risk management side of this. How much did really making your bones in the 1970s in the midst of that horrific bear market, plus inflation, plus uh, 12% risk-free treasury yields, how much did that impact the psychology 
of what you guys were doing because you keep talking about um, and everything I've read from both of you is manage your risk, don't let disasters happen, pay attention to the primary trend. How formative were the 1970s to, to Ned Davis research? Uh, again, Ned Ned's genius mm-hmm. is what I what I banked on. I, I realized very early that it wasn't Ed Mendel research; it was right. Ned Davis research. Right. So we. Sold- but you were you were and, and and I I appreciate your humility, but you were instrumental in taking his brilliant insights and building a business around it. Because left to his own devices, I get the feeling that Ned would be very happy to just stare at, at, at the computer, crunch numbers, but perhaps not monetize that in, in the ways that you've managed to. Well, yeah, I had to go out on the road and hire the people. Ned did not de- want to deal with lawyers or accountants, mm-hmm. and uh, he wanted to do research, which right. it was is that's his forte. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, he did it unbelievably well, and he wasn't distracted. And so he, he did not go out on the road a whole lot, and uh, so I, it was left up to me to, to, to do the marketing and build the firm. And that started in 1980, and then 30 years later, the firm was sold to who? Euromoney. You guys built a reputation for being fact-based, quantitative, and really one of the first major technical analysis firms. So, so let's talk about that a little bit. You're an institutional salesperson. Ned is looking at charts. How did you perceive the value of technicals for for your institutional clients way back in the 70s and, and 1980 when you launched. Ned would be the first to tell you that technical analysis doesn't work half the time, mm-hmm. but neither does fundamentals. Right. And so the genius which Ned has is to be able to mesh and look at everything. Mm-hmm. And so we also did, you know, an c- incredible deal on, uh, on uh, uh, sentiment. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, so we have some of the best cinema charts, you know, around. So Ned's genius is that he looked at everything. Right. And he just didn't hang his hat on technical analysis. So, but you were out in the trenches selling the product to institutions. Yeah. Did you find that when you were discussing charts, sentiment, everything else, that all the work that was being generated in-house, was there an advantage to working with charts and technicals? Was it different than what everybody else was selling? What what made this so successful? Because it's easy to say in retrospect, well, we were more wrong than right. But at the time, you're the guy who's selling it, and you don't know how much wronger or righter it's going to be. Well, Ned had incredible historical perspective mm-hmm. on the market and everything. And so we, we, we went out there. We had a broad-based service. We had like 10 different services. Mm-hmm. And so um, we just didn't hang our hat on you know the bond commentary or the stock rankings but between ned's hotline which is probably the best historic perspective and fed watching around and then the chart service where we got you know people really depended on us for uh, their client presentations marketing and meetings mm-hmm. uh, and brochures and then we added to that where uh, we were doing all this customized research so it's a service business so you know I, I came from uh, a southern town retail and you, the customers, you grew up in, in Little Rock Arkansas uh-huh, is that right yeah but the customer's always right mm-hmm. and we did we tried to do more than our share in a relationship and we tried not to gouge the customers and for value received we we gave them a great total product but we were very lucky that the soft dollars were able to cover the cost and and it was painless for them Mm -hmm. to pay us and by the time you guys ended up selling in 2010 i want to say ned davis research was institutionally one of the most widely followed institutional services out there is that a is that a fair statement fair statement we know that the early days, Ned was attracted to computers, but here we are in 2017. Computers are running everything from high-frequency trading to analyzing SEC filings to uh, just about anything you could think of. How have computers changed the game of institutional investing? Again, I've been out of the, the business for, for seven years, mm-hmm. and the, you know— it's the ETFs and the trading 
that uh, have diminished everything. And the it's it's the, what, what made it wasn't the computer; it was Ned's uh, interpretation of the data and the information. And so uh, you layered upon, you know, the computer. You had Ned's Ned's historical perspective and uh, economic view, monetary view. And that's what made us different. We had to differentiate ourselves. And so the computer, you know, and this goes back to 82. Reagan deserves a lot of credit for things that he did, but he was very lucky. The personal computer came along and uh, created 26 million jobs. Mm-hmm. But it also made us unbelievably productive. I mean, unbelievably. It used to take us all day to do a mailing list, literally. And and uh, once you started working with the computer it, in 82? It was, it was seconds. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. once we got everything up and running. So it's the productivity that made us unbelievably successful also. But the pushback to that would be, well, computers were available and they can make everybody productive. Why were you guys able to take advantage of it? when others didn't? Well, again, I alluded to the the data. Mm -hmm. Ned was the first with data and clean data. And so he uh, could look at 500 charts a day with a red pen and knows knows when a a chart is a sixteenth or the slightest bit off. Just by eyeballing. Yes. So his uh, one of his many genius things is, but we 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 were a freak about clean data, and there's a lot of was a lot of, or probably still is a lot of bad data out there. Let's talk a little bit about the modern stock market. How did you guys think about managing risk when you uh, launched the firm in in the early '80s? You know, I was 30 years old. And uh, I was too naive or stupid to, to really worry. I, I knew it would be a big success. And so it, there wasn't any question that, you know, between my retail business and having Ned as a partner, that it was going to be successful. So it wasn't a question of managing risk. It was, uh, it was about putting money back into the business and, and building it. And so not taking money out for two years and hiring salespeople and hiring people and programmers uh, and, and uh, you know, that's what helped get, lay the foundation for the thing to be successful. So you said you didn't take money out for two years and basically the revenue was coming from the high net worth side, but you guys had to be taking salaries. You weren't just doing nothing. Nope. Nothing. Not nothing. a penny. Not a Every penny. Every dollar went back into the business for two years. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And so you were really paying your dues in, in that period. Yeah, I remember writing checks for $35 and $70 and cringing. Uh-huh. And cringing. Uh-huh. So at what point did the firm begin to be able to allow the two of you to take a salary? In two years. Took two years. Two years. And what was it that changed? The launch of the new products? No, you know, we, we were building an institutional base mm-hmm. that that was taking off, and we started clearing through Bear Stearns. Uh-huh. Alex Greenberg was, you know, very helpful in convincing Ned that, you know, he, he took us aside for his eight seconds and said, <laughs> just come here, we'll take care of everything. They, they had an unbelievable clearing operation. Bear, this is Bear Stearns in the early 80s. Uh-huh. At the time, they were the third or fourth largest uh, brokerage firm. Is that yeah, about right? But they, they were probably the biggest clearing firm for, mm-hmm. for what we did. Institutional Institutional trading. trading. And so we didn't have to have floor brokers or clearing or back office. So, you know, the Bank of New York would call up Bear Stearns and buy a million shares of Boeing right. for a dime. And they would credit. Per make, share. Uh-huh, and give credit to. This one, this one, and this one are Ned Davis Research. Right. So, um, so that's a hundred thousand dollar commission on that transaction. Well, back then, twenty five, whatever it was. Right. It made it so easy for people to pay us. So, in other words, they would pay for the research via the institutional trades, which they're going to do anyway. And really, what the heck it, is ten? It, didn't, cents? it did not cost them anything. Right. Ten yeah. cents on on Bo- a share of Boeing then. At yeah, but, 50 but, or 60 but even bucks. then, it wasn't their money. So, because it's institutional and other people's it was money, a, it was a pension fund of Kmart. Yeah, but what they spend, I guess, it doesn't really matter who they're uh, trading for. What matters is who they're um, executing through and where the the money men. In other words, whether they paid a nickel or a dime or fifteen cents, 
didn't affect their bottom line. That's right. So OPM and big institutional trading made it easy. But you guys are a fairly full service. You guys were, and Ned Davis still is, a fairly full service um, research shop. What is, if I go to NDR and say, I want everything, how much can I spend a year with them? Again, I've been out for six years. Give me a but, ballpark from 10 years ago. Um, you know, twenty five, fifty, a hundred thousand dollars. Okay, so yeah. that's a lot of data, a lot of charts, a lot of mm-hmm. custom research. Yeah, but you know, Goldman Sachs used to have six hundred cash traders. They have now two. The soft dollar business has diminished. Two mar- from six hundred to yes. two. Yeah, so, and that's computers essentially. Yeah, well, and also now everything's going to ETFs, and um, and volume is actually way down. It's it's a very different business. So we've seen a move towards passive investing from a lot of the mom-and-pop investors, as well as on the institutional side. We've seen the rise of ETFs, and as these two things have happened, we've seen a huge decrease in uh, trading volume. What does this mean for what used to be called institutional trading and now is called, I don't even know what, what do you call it these days? Is it just buy-side research? How do, how do you describe it? If you have to pay hard dollars uh-huh. for a service, it's tough. It's tough, and you have to justify, and uh, it's tough. So, uh, you know, people that used to pay us hundred thousand, I just heard of somebody, you know, going to forty thousand. Wow! So it it, it it it's it's the margins get squeezed, and uh, you know everything was wonderful when you could pay with other people's money. No, no longer. Well, there's still some of it out there, but you know, Europe is going to the MF, MFID, mm-hmm. and that's gonna, you know, that's it's I gonna think, be a hard dollar squeeze as well. Yeah, well, but the, the, the SEC let people off the hook here, but still, uh, BlackRock I think went from 220 providers down to 100. And what does that mean in terms of hard research dollars drying up? Drying up. So. You're no longer in, in as involved in the business as you are. You're doing other stuff. How closely do you watch the stock market um, as a retiree? You know, I get up in the morning, uh, mm-hmm. and I love reading. And uh, so and I'm somewhat addicted to the market. Mm-hmm. And so I get up very it's early. It's tough to pull that needle out of yes, your arm, it is. isn't it, after yes, it 40 is. years? Yes, it is. And it's still the greatest game ever. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, I, I love the game. And I love reading, uh, and uh, the market is still uh, my number one love. Are you still invested in the market, or have you moved more towards a fixed income portfolio? Uh, uh, a third, a third, a third, and uh, stocks, bonds, cash. Is that real the, estate? Stocks, bonds, real, real estate. estate. Well, the Falcons are a very big uh, investment, also. Right. But uh, and we have a big, big uh, stadium that's mm-hmm. uh, that's really nice. Um, so uh, uh, I, uh, I'm very big on uh, having goals, and uh, meaning investing towards goals no, or just, just personal personal goals. Uh, years ago, I always had something in my wallet of all the goals, and it changes because at 30, it's very different than at 60 or 40. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so, you know, right now, I, you know, accumulating great more wealth. Uh, won't make me any happier. Mm-hmm. Maybe can give more money to charity, mm-hmm. but uh, I, I really don't want to accumulate any more things, mm-hmm. uh, except a Super Bowl ring. Okay. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the Falcons. How do you like them, and what changes are coming to the NFL? The, the, you know, uh, I'm from Arkansas, mm-hmm. and so a Razorback fan. It was always wait till next year, right? And you know, you don't appreciate how hard it is to get to the Super Bowl and to win it. Uh, it's the most competitive thing in the world to reach that level. Uh-huh. So many things have to go right. Plus, you have to get lucky. You just appreciate the good times, and uh-huh. uh, if, if 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 everything breaks right, but again. Uh, two or three key injuries, and it's it's problematic. Yeah. So the big issue we won't even talk about. We'll save the kneeling and the football anthem stuff for for later. In general, we've been seeing sports see a lot of pressure with cable uh, people unbundling and moving to the internet. What does the future of sports broadcasts look like? Is it going to be mobile and internet? 
is because the idea of television and cable and saying here I, I'm subscribing to cable and I have to get these 200 channels whether I want them or not is that going to change uh, how rapidly is that going to change we know it's changing yeah. what what do we think happens but again Jeff Enix and Barron's basically talks about that you know the sports entertainment is just still one of those things football and NHL is something that you want to see live live right you and can't so, you and, can't read about it afterwards yeah. well you can but it's not it's not the, not same. the same right? it's not the same and so you know we we, we have a product that uh, uh, people want to have mm-hmm. and uh, you know uh, I had a partner named John Emily who died recently but was mm-hmm. one of the most successful venture people in, uh, in, in in Atlanta and he always told me he says Eddie no matter w- whether we win or whether we lose the value of the franchise goes up every day <laughs> that that's a uh, a pretty interesting point we have been speaking with uh, Ed Mendel of Ned Davis Research and the Atlanta Falcons if you enjoy this conversation be sure and check out our podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue chatting about all sorts of interesting things. You can find that wherever fine podcasts are sold, uh, iTunes, Overcast, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, etc. Be sure and check out my daily column. You'll find that on Bloomberg.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Eddie, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, There are two things I I have to thank you for. One is when I first had the idea a decade ago for, hey, let's not ask people what's their favorite stock or where the Dow's going to be in a year. Let's find out who they are and how they got that way. Let's find smart, successful people and say, so what can we learn from you? One of the very first versions of this show was Ned Davis. We did on the phone. You helped to arrange that. I want to say that's almost ten years ago. Am I am I ballpark with that? Yes. So that that was a fascinating conversation, and it was so clear after we did it. Even though it sounded terrible, it was on the phone, and I had no idea what the hell I was doing. It was clear to me that wow, not doing four minutes and then a commercial, but letting people. When cybercriminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. Hey, tell me about this and letting them speak and, and share their history, their anecdotes, their experiences was really valuable and that's led to a whole run of fascinating people telling me really amazing stories. And I have you to help for setting that up to begin with. Um, The other thing I had to say is when I was thinking about launching my shop, I came to you and said, hey, I'm I'm wrestling with these ideas. And you gave me a lot of really good advice. And and I want to thank you for that. It was was very, very helpful. Thanks for remembering. Oh, trust me, I remember everything. so so let's talk a little bit about, about football. Um, are we going to ever see live football on Facebook, Twitter, et cetera? I know there have been some contracts and some announcements made. Are we going to ever be in a situation where I don't need to be home in front of a television? I could just pull up my phone and watch a game? I'm uh, a minority owner. <laughs> so, But you have some insight. Is that is that something that... 
we're thinking about? They are constantly, yes. You know, they're looking at all aspects of, of, of everything mm-hmm. to, to monetize this and, to, you know, to keep millennials and keep people interested in, in, uh, in, in football. But, you know, uh, we have a lot of people at the NFL home office, and they're constantly working looking, away. Working away. So there's a couple of really interesting things going on in football. Um, and I know you don't speak on behalf of the league or the team, so I'm being circumspect in, in mm-hmm. what I can ask you. You're not an authorized spokesperson for NFL, but you're certainly uh, an astute observer. Um, uh, three things uh, that I, I've been thinking about or aware of. The first is uh, the idea of, of people's phones being the most important screen in their life. I have to think we're going to see Netflix or Twitter or Facebook eventually doing a, a regular broadcast. The other thing, which we haven't heard a lot about this year, but was pretty big the past couple of years, uh, and I've been reading about some of the new technologies, uh, was the concussion issues. And I've been reading about these new helmets that supposedly uh, lighter, stronger, more dissipating of, of energy. Uh, how much is technology going to be the basis of a solution for you know, keeping players safer over time. You know, we recognize it as a big deal, and I, and I think the this is year a couple four million dollars a year. I think we were spending mm-hmm. on uh, research mm-hmm. to come up with safer, better, you know, helmets. But you know, it is it is a, it's a big issue, and uh, uh, you know, it's a major concern. The the most recent piece of technology I was reading about is this new helmet. A couple of uh, I don't remember if it was MIT or Caltech. But a couple of professors developed this helmet. If the standard helmet is $300, this is $900. But supposedly the uh, the physics underlying um, impact energy dissipation has progressed to the point where there's we should really expect to see some significant changes going forward. Is that, I know you can't speak publicly officially, but is it fair to say that Technology is going to be a big part of the solution. Just about has to be. Right. So, uh, but, you know, they're, they're finding from junior high school, high school, college, that, you know, this is, this is a cumulative effect. It's, right. not just, it's not just the NFL. Sure. So that, that's an issue that um, uh, kind of got overwhelmed this, this year by, by other stuff. Um, what else do you see that's interesting taking place in, in football? I, I just read a fascinating review of uh, of the the commissioner um, Goodell Goodell and he's about to re up his contract uh, basically the owners seem to think he's doing a, a tremendous job in a very difficult environment is is that a fair fair assessment you know, again i'm not uh, I'm, st- I'm still the minority partner <laughs> from 15 minutes ago right <laughs> so so you're not um, turning around to uh, to, to say anything. If you Google, uh, there was a recent story about on ESPN and a handful of other places, the consensus seems to be very challenging couple of years, especially under this president. Um, but he's done about as good a job as anybody really is uh, can expect of him. Fair, fair, uh, fair yeah, assessment. Yeah, but like you know this better than anybody. Everything changes. So sure. It's, it's cha- it's, you know, there's never been a time when the, when there wasn't something to worry about. Of course. In the market or in life. So we were we were just discussing this the other day that we are biologically programmed to notice bad news, and one of my colleagues in the office, Mike Batnick, wrote a piece: Why good news is overlooked. You, it, good news is never a threat. But bad news is a threat, and that's why we basically place such disproportionate weight on that. Well, except for right now, I think good news in the market is good news, and bad news just isn't true. Uh, well, what sort of bad news in the market isn't true? What, what do you see as, as the, the memes that are out there that are negative for the market, but we're overemphasizing or putting too much weight on? We'll get back to uh, black swan events, okay. which I'm, I'm not big on. Right. But there, in Japanese folklore, there's a thing called white swans. And a white swan is something right in front of you that you just can't see. 
we don't just not paying attention to. Mm-hmm. And so uh, this next time around, just like in, in 01, the dot com was right in front of you, and right. the Fed didn't see it. And 08, you had, they saw it. They just said, ah, what can we do? It's easy okay. to clean up afterwards. And, and, but 08, no money down, pay what you want, interest only, no documentation. Uh, how can anybody not be surprised? But it it was right in front of you, and so right. this this. Next- in fact, I have to again give kudos to Ned Davis Research. One of my favorite charts that, if you looked at, you couldn't help but not see something coming. There were three charts that I tracked in the early two thousands. Some of which came from you. One was cost of owning versus cost of renting. That was a pretty standard chart. The one that I first noticed from Ned Davis Research was median income versus median home price. Ned mm. was putting that out, and for decades it you know moved up and down a little bit, and then in oh four oh five it went straight up through the roof, and um, it was clear something strange was going on. There was no other way to to describe that, um, and then the third one was, and I think this also might have been you guys, was total value of the um, total value of the housing stock, meaning all the homes in America, mm-hmm. relative to GDP. And similarly, it was you know pretty steady for decades, and then suddenly three standard orders of, of magnitude. If you were, I, I call the financial crisis the jumping dolphin of crises, do you remember the 3D paintings that people used to have? Mm-hmm. If you stared at it right, suddenly you would see the, the leaping dolphin. Mm-hmm. Those charts were the leaping dolphin. If you saw those charts, it was obvious, hey, this is all going to blow up. Um, but if you weren't looking in the right place, well, the market keeps going higher. It must, The market must know that this isn't important, I heard over and over again. Well, getting back to the, to the white swan, uh, you know, things are really great right now. There's no economists not saying, you know, there's no recession for a couple of years. And, uh, you know, earnings are record highs. Uh, NASDAQ long, record long high. And, growing. and so uh, the, the white swan that's out there is that maybe things are too good and, you're, you know, you're going to have a blow off. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Fed's going to tighten the economy. Yeah, you then, can't and, lower re- unemployment any further, can you? Uh, again, uh, <laughs> you know, there's lies, damn lies, and statistics. Right. So, uh, uh, nothing would surprise me. I, but, I but, understand. Uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the you know this thing is somewhat manipulated. Mm-hmm. You, you know, two hundred eighty because of the Fed, QE, because of the Fed, and no, EU especially, mm-hmm. and Japan, and. and Japan, you know, they own 65% of all the ETFs and 65% of the topics. And you know, Switzerland owns $280 billion worth of stock out of thin air. Mm-hmm. Mother Nature doesn't like to be fooled. So whatever happens will come out in inflation or currencies or the bond market. Uh, so let me push back. If, I, if I had to guess the white swan yeah. is right in front of us, it's just everything is good. It right. may be too good. So let me push back against that. Every time there's some sort of financial crisis, be it 0809 or 2000 or 74 or mm-hmm. uh, 29 or pick your crisis in the United States, the government always steps in to do something. You know, we created the SEC, we created the FDIC. Isn't that standard that uh, some disaster befalls us and and uh, the free marketers suddenly become, ah, maybe we can manage this a little more uh, aggressively. Well, uh, again, I had breakfast with uh, the president of the, Dow- of the Atlanta Fed, mm-hmm. and uh, I asked him, the next speed bump, what are you going to do? This is last year at breakfast. And he says, we're just going to do more QE. And so that's now the solution to everything? That, it must be, because they don't, they don't. I ask if there's a plan B. There isn't. There isn't a plan B. And so, you know, you so they'll buy real estate and ETFs or whatever this next time. But they're already doing that in Europe. So every general fights the last battle. QE worked fine when the issue was a frozen credit market. But if you just have a cyclical slowdown and a recession, what is QE going to do? That's, that's, the, that's the question. And uh, hmm. it's, it's going to be very interesting. Yeah, to say the least. I want to get to our favorite questions, but there's one thing um, 
I have to ask about sentiment. You're raising that issue. Um, things are too good. Do you, do you think the investing public thinks things are too good? Because up until recently, they did not embrace this rally. They were not. I mean, the market tripled since the March 09 lows, and they seem to constantly be waiting for the black swan, not the white swan. Yeah. The, you know, but you have record low mutual fund cash, mm-hmm. and you know the market's tripled, but revenue's only up thirty percent, mm-hmm. and so there's been, but profits are higher. Yeah, no, profits are higher, but some of that's financial engineering, meaning share buybacks and, yeah, well, and things like that. Yeah, uh, I just read the uh, the two and a half trillion dollars overseas. You know, Apple and Oracle and all these companies already spent five hundred and sixty billion. Borrowing money, borrowing buying money, back shares buying, buying, against buying that overseas shares. cash. Yeah. yeah, they still have stellar balance sheets, but uh, you know, the it's but the, it's not the public. It's it's but the public or whoever is buying twenty billion dollars of ETFs a month, mm-hmm. and the, the sixty-four trillion dollar question is what? Who's going to buy when they want? If they, if they ever start selling the ETFs, right? It, it could get ugly very fast. But you know. Uh, you know, you, you you know, in a bull market, be bullish. So this is this is just a good time to be bullish, <laughs> to, to say the least. Uh, let's jump to our favorite questions. These are uh, what I ask all of our guests. Tell me the most important thing people don't know about your background. Um, um I uh, had a grandfather mm-hmm. who uh, got me interested in the market when I was seven. Yeah, and I uh, started buying stocks when I was seven, and he gave me a healthy disrespect for the banking system. Oh, really? Yes, and uh, he had all his money in a safety deposit box when the when the when the crash came. Ah, uh-huh. and he also taught me uh, about uh, uh, being a scavenger buyer of fixed income because he made his money buying railroad bonds, a penny and a nickel on the dollar. Wow! And then he thought he invented. Uh, tax straddles back in the 30s. Did he or no? Uh, well, he did it, so he, he was way ahead of his time. He also was a socialist. In, uh, uh, <laughs> a socialist market trader? Yes, he was. That's interesting. And uh, he, he was claimed he was secretary-treasurer of the Socialist Party between 1915 and 1918 and voted for Eugene Debs five times. Wow. And he said they disbanded the Socialist Party when FDR was elected because he was the biggest socialist that ever lived. <laughs> Well, but, we created uh, we created social security. We did a lot of things under yeah. under FDR. Yes, Medicaid. Um, certainly, the SEC. There's a ton of stuff that that he did. I find a lot of people who have been successful in the market and have accumulated wealth are starting to get pretty concerned about uh, inequality because they would rather the public be fairly satisfied and not. Calling for revolution. Well, if you ask me for the one thing that you know bothers me uh-huh. is that this this has not been distributed. It's been great for wealthy people. Mm-hmm. I think uh, blue collar middle class people are struggling, and you're, you're and this is the white swan that you you saw it in Trump being elected, but you saw it in the British exit. Sure. Saw it in Spain, but you, last week in Catalonia, Czechos- absolutely in Czechoslovakia and Austria, but you saw France. The two major parties were mm-hmm. cut off. Uh, even Merkel had her knees buckled. Right. And so, and the nationalism's out there, and, uh, you know, bad things happen when, you know. The, the and you're nation- tracing this to income inequality and. Uh, well, I, no, I, I'm just tracing it there. I, I think that, that just what you said, the, the whole, there's a whole class of people out there that haven't participated. And are not happy. And if the numbers are right, of fifty-one percent or something, can't you know come up with two hundred dollars or whatever? That's shocking. It's it's there. You know, there, there's a problem out there. And uh, you know, I haven't got the answer, but I, you know, you're seeing something right in front of you. And you know, you got the the, the people in Brussels, unelected uh, bureaucrats, right. that uh, are sort of like Monty Python, the Black Knight that <laughs> lost one arm, one leg. <laughs> The other arm, the other leg, and says it's just a well, flesh. Call it a draw. No, he said it's just a flesh wound. <laughs> right, but they're not paying any attention. That right underneath what's what's happening right underneath their noses. But you, Greece and uh, Italy have, have these parties, and Le Pen, right. na- nationalism, it, populism, it, nationalism. 
Uh, people are pushing back against globalization mm -hmm. and the loss of jobs to low-cost providers. It's not just China, but it's Turkey and Vietnam and elsewhere. And, and, and computers and, and sure. robots. And, no, it, it is, it is, it, if you had to pick one thing that is worrisome, you hit on it, that it's, 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 this has not been a broad-based wonderful thing for everybody. And, and that is a, of a concern. So that may, perhaps that's the white swan you talk about. Let, let's talk about your early mentors. Who were the people who affected the way you think about business and markets? Uh, well, first was my grandfather, mm -hmm. and then, you know, second was Ned. Right. And uh, Marty Zwag. Mm -hmm. What was your relationship with Marty Zweig? Well, For you youngins listening, Zweig was a very famous technician, owned at, I think it was the most expensive home in America at one point in yeah, time, the top the of Pierre, the Pierre, Pierre Hotel, the right. Pierre Ballroom. And regular Mar on Rue Kaiser. And he, had, he had all the Beatles outfits and Marilyn Monroe's outfit and, uh -huh. and uh, was quite a remarkable individual. And, uh, and, and how did Marty uh, uh, affect your just, thoughts? Just his studies and, you know, he, he was just brilliant. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, uh, also I was, would tell you that uh, this is under Ripley's Believe It or Not, that uh, uh, talking about failures, that uh, I was partners with Marty and Ned and not one but two retail letters, and both went south really which i would have thought would be impossible to do let me tell you that's a that's question number seven let's ask it now tell me about a time you failed and what you learned from it marty zweig and ned davis two of the most successful technicians in history how did you not make a go of those newsletters um uh good question <laughs> uh but i i think you know one was a bond letter Right, and it goes back to you know timing. No, well, Einstein dies and goes up to heaven, and the, the Holy One calls him in and says, "Can you explain the bond market to me?" So I don't, I don't <laughs> think anybody can explain the bond market. That's we, very funny. We had a bond letter, and uh, um, the, for whatever reason, that uh, I think Ned and Marty's forte was not in bonds, but I don't. I really don't remember. I try to you know suppress that. Suppress it, but uh, <laughs> I, I think more importantly, I think it it, it was the retail. Is 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 a much more difficult uh, market than selling to institutions, institutions. like so, NDR does. So you know, I learned the one lesson I learned from that is that uh, you know, sticks, you know, dance with them who brung you. That, that's a that's a fair question. Um, what about investors? Any investors affect the way you look at business or finance? Um, you know, I'm I'm a big believer in blink. And mm -hmm. going out and finding people that can do things that that you cannot do, and uh, uh, and there's plenty of those. But uh, I'm not a big believer in hedge funds. Uh -huh. I, had, I had eight or nine at one time. Really? Uh -huh. But I'm meaning down. money invested in it, uh -huh. not running. Yeah, but they're they they can't they can't perform now for whatever whatever reason. The conditions have changed. At one point in time, some of them were creating alpha. Very few these days. Very few. Huh. Yeah, maybe two or three percent. Wow, that's fascinating. Um, let's talk about books. This is everybody's famous favorite question. Uh, tell us about books that you you read. What do you, what sort of stuff do you like? Fiction, okay. nonfiction. Well, I read three or four hours every day, but really, I don't uh, read fiction and nonfiction anymore. So, what are you reading? But I do. My favorite author is is Malcolm Gladwell. Mm -hmm. Blink and Tipping Point. Mm -hmm. And the tipping point is AIDS epidemics, syphilis epidemics, crime epidemics, stock market, bond markets. Everything goes to a tipping point. Right. And uh, life goes to a tipping point. And uh, it's always good to remember that, uh, you know, it's there. there's a tipping point out there, mm -hmm. you know, at some point. For everything. For everything. For everything. Things, it, things that cannot go on eventually stop. Stop. And then Blink is, is, again, one of my favorite books. But whether it's a, an electrician or a car mechanic, finding these people that can do things, and they know things in a blink. Right. And uh, keeping them dear, you know, is, is really, really make, makes your life a lot easier. Have you, have you read Outliers yet? Yes, I have. I, that was a really interesting yeah, book. Yeah, everything he does is, is great. Always, always fascinating. Although I will tell you, uh, yes, the Beatles played the Cavern Club eight hours a day for a year. Mm. I could play the Cavern Club eight hours a day for 100 years. I will never be the Beatles. Mm. And vice versa. There are people who 
pick stuff up so rapidly that they're just built for certain things. Yes. But uh, I find all his books thought-provoking and interesting, and he's an excellent writer. I yeah. mean, his prose is just yeah. lovely. His podcasts from last year were great. Only maybe two of the ones this year were the outstanding. One, the ones from last year was um, a, a history of what, – what, what's the name of his podcast? Uh, revisionist history revisionist history that's what it was mm-hmm. yeah i listened to a few of them i thought they were very interesting mm-hmm. he he's always interesting who who else do you read anybody else uh well i read you i, I think that you have the the, <laughs> the the best uh service out there and i especially like your 10 a.m reads the, the morning 10 things each day the mm-hmm. the morning reads thank you for saying that um they're usually out 7 seven thirty in the morning i try and get them out as early as possible I, I sift through a lot of junk to get to that. Um, there's a long story behind the reads. I'll have to share them one day. But thank you so much for saying that. It is um, it is an interesting thing that forces me to realize how much of what's produced is just noise and finding something that is insightful, educational, and, and helpful is is hard. So out of the thousands of things, identifying those 10 things each day is a little bit of a challenge. Yes. Well, I appreciate I appreciate the kind words. What do you do outside of the office to uh, stay either mentally or physically fit? Well, the, the mental part is, is reading. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in the morning, I all the CBS Sports, uh, mm-hmm. Bleacher Report, you know, I'm a, I'm a sports junkie, but, but also— No surprise. And so, but also there's lots of things that I like reading in the morning. So what Wall else? Street, what else do you read? The Wall Street Journal, you know, Barron's, Zuloff. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's ten or twenty people that you know. I, I really like getting their stuff. Zuloff, give me a couple of other names. Who else do you like to read? Uh, I, I like to read the Pimco mm-hmm. people. Uh, the, the the one person that is is brilliant and and uh, uh, is is um, Double Line. Uh, Jeff Gunlock. Jeff, Jeff Gunlock. Fascinating, fascinating and, guy. Uh, uh, he, he, fascinating. And uh, uh, he, he, he's, uh, he's out there thinking on another, on another level. He, he definitely is. And every now and then I'll read something of his, and I'm like, wow, he's not afraid to really put it all out there. And as often as not, he's right on some of these real outlier calls that you would think is a much lower... Success rate. He, he was one of the first people to come out on Trump. That's exactly right. I mm-hmm. remember saying, hey, you're under, I remember reading him saying, you're underestimating the anger in the country and you're underestimating uh, the potential for a change candidate to win and Trump is a tr- change mm-hmm. candidate. And he wanted to buy the Buffalo Bills. And uh, they didn't let him. Uh, he, I don't know what what happened, but uh, he he all, would but, be a but, fantastic owner. But he he uh, two th- two things he uh, he forecast that they wouldn't win many many games this year, which has not been true. They have a good team, and the, the other most fascinating thing, which we could have a whole other segment on, he talks about his autism. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And uh, I found that lots of the really unbelievable people on the street. Uh, just like in the big short, have Asperger's. Uh, Asperger's are somewhere on the spectrum, spectrum. across across the board. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard that about uh, Ken Fisher mentioned his dad mm-hmm. was, uh, you know, pre-diagnosis. Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. thought he was Asperger's. Ken himself very easily could be. Uh, go down the list of, of, of people who have the ability to remove their emotions from the decision-making mm-hmm. process. And if you could do that... There might be a little spectrum going on with yeah, that, for sure. Right. That's, to, and that's what you need to do to be, to be great. You know, you, you need to be different from the average human. Yeah, in some but they disseminate way. information completely and totally different than mm-hmm. than, than, a, than a normal person. Uh, not to name drop, but I'm going to name drop. Mark Andreessen had has pointed out that Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook is a learning machine. He said he's never met anybody who learned as aggressively as him, constantly reading, constantly assimilating data. And, and as your description immediately made me think of him that well, way. But Jobs, mm-hmm. socially, inept, inept, totally inept, terrible, inept, terrible, right. terrible, just, terrible just to work Just a bull in a China shop. But he didn't have any committees, and he did all those things. Right. Him, 
but he knew things other people didn't, didn't know, and he knew it in a blink. Right. And you can't teach that. It's just right. – uh, just That's intuitive. A, that's instinctual. But it's also a curse. Right. Why? Why a curse? No, no, this, you're, so, you're socially inept. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the big the, – uh, uh, big in, short. In, the big short. The wife says, I'm, I don't do this. I don't do that. I don't shave. I don't bathe. This is just the kind of man I'm looking for. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Lewis is another one of those writers who are oh, just unbelievable. So, any any favorite Lewis books? While well, since I wrote uh, yeah, it up? everything he's put out of everything. Yeah, every, he's, everything. So he's it's Lewis done. and Gladwell, and those are your favorite. Those uh, are my yeah. But I, I'm more, I'm more interested in life in in uh-huh. in, in how it affects life yeah. did you read um the undoing project by lewis the no. book about oh well i'm going to give you a book recommendation mm-hmm. lewis wrote about danny kahneman and amos tversky who discovered all of these um behavioral issues that not just economists and economic behavior but across the board the way humans behave and it's a fascinating story i if you like michael lewis it's a little different than some of his other books but it's just as fascinating. It's really a fa- – I, I now envy you for not having read it because you get to read it. Okay. I've already read it. So let's get to our last two questions, my favorite questions. So if an, an, a millennial or someone who just graduated college came to you and said, hey, I'm looking for some advice uh, on uh, career and finance, what sort of advice would you give them? Well, I actually try to mentor millennials. Mm-hmm. And I have a packet. Uh, I have found that – most do not have a clue about interviewing. Mm-hmm. So I give them a packet on how to interview, and I try to take them to lunch or dinner. And I can tell you that there's five or ten things that I reinforce that they must do uh-huh. to uh, make a good first impression. And then there's three or four or five questions I try to teach them of questions they need to ask. But uh, helping them in the interview process is, is very, very important because they really uh, do not show up ready to make a good first impression. G- give us an example of each. What, what do you suggest they do on their interview okay. and what sort of questions the, do you suggest? The, 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 they need to put their resume on slightly thicker paper. Mm-hmm. Um, they need to have at the bottom like nice bonded linen paper uh-huh. that feels substantial that's right not xerox paper. that's right it's noticed mm-hmm. and then they need to have community service at the bottom of the resume mm-hmm. they have to have no spelling or punctuation or grammar zero no errors whatsoever. no errors whatsoever they need to walk in with a briefcase Okay. Open up the briefcase. Here's my resume. Well, my... it has to be organized. Mm-hmm. They walk in with the left hand and shake a firm handshake, which a lot of them don't know how to handshake. Really? With a, with a, with a firm handshake. Uh, if they go to lunch or dinner and uh, the Don't boss... order spaghetti. No, but yeah, don't order spaghetti. I learned but, that uh, okay. too late. <laughs> but uh, if the boss orders fish and chips and scotch on the rocks, you order the same exact thing. Mm-hmm. Commonality is the most important thing. And so you want to learn everything you can about that person and the company, mm-hmm. everything. And if you walk in and see that he's a tennis player, you love tennis. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, and the, you know, the, 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 you know, the, 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 the process also, the second thing is you, you want to ask them, uh, why is this position open? Um, how do you measure success? Um, um, Good questions. Yeah, and what's the next pro- what's the next stage in the process? You also want to take a card when you leave and write them a personal thank you and tell mm-hmm. them you want to be part of their team and how impressed you were. And if, even if you get rejected, you want to go back again. Send the thank you note for being rejected and please keep me in mind in yeah. the future. But persistence pays off. Good good advice for any millennial. And our final question, what is it that you know about the world of investing today that you wish you knew 40 years ago when you were first starting? Oh, that's, that is a good question. Isn't that? It's yes. my favorite question. Is it really? I've saved it for well, the last. Uh, uh, that, that is my uh, encore. After the everybody cheers, you come out, you do the last song. Uh, that's my last song. Well, you know, 40, 40 years ago, I, I think I was uh, too naive and stupid to, 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 to know how much uh, risk I was taking 
you know, at the time. But, you know, it also goes back to uh, the women neuronet at 25 and men at 30. Mm-hmm. And so 30 is just a wonderful age to matriculate and to, 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 to do things. And so I'll tell you one final story sure. about, about Jesus. Okay. Uh, Jesus is the Son of God. Average life expectancy back then was 32 years of age. It's a misnomer because half the people died in childbirth. Right. 32. So did you ever wonder, uh, they, don't, they don't know anything about him between the age of 3 and 30. Mm-hmm. Zero. Why at 30 all of a sudden did he emerge? Because he peaked at 30? Not quite. But uh, he... Jewish people do not allow you to become a rabbi until you're 29 or 30. Oh, really? You cannot teach life until you've experienced. Uh-huh. Same thing with the medicine, okay? You don't want a doctor that— Who's 22. No you, Doogie Hauser. Yeah, do—uh-huh. So, you know, the, the 30, 30, you know, lots of things in Judaism are well thought out, and this is why at 30 he emerged because nobody would listen to him until he was 30. So I tell millennials also that college is a time to grow up and mature and then go out and get your MBA, you know, and experience life before you go out and, and try to do something. So, we, so eventually you're, you're teeing yourself up to become somebody at 30 when you can have an, uh, a more successful chance of being successful, I, th- I think. This is just me. I like that. That's fascinating. Ed, thank you so much for doing this. We have been speaking with Ed Mendel. He is a co-founder of Ned Davis Research as well as minority owner of the Atlanta Falcons. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, Overcast, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, wherever finer podcasts are sold. And you could see the other 160 or so such conversations that we've had previously. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I forgot to mention our crack staff that helps put together uh, these weekly podcasts. Medina Parwana is our audio producer. Taylor Riggs is in charge of booking. Uh, And Michael Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than a destination. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all. All of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a Stiefel Financial Advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.